We are about to wrap up this sermon series. Next Sunday will be the final sermon in this series on the stories that Jesus told. Um, so, and then, like I said, we're going into Zechariah. A couple of months ago, our son Eric preached at Movement Christian Church out in New Hampshire. And the big idea, all of their sermons there have one big idea. And the big idea for Eric's message was, what if we really believed his love? And I thought it was really neat because they had these little tattoos made up. I guess because Eric's got tattoos, they had these little tattoos made up that said, what if we really believed his love? Uh, they were the kind that you could, you know, temporary put on and then wash off. But I wonder, I wonder if we need to take this one stage further. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, what if we really believed God is love? What does it mean to you that God is love? How do we even understand the love of God? See, I knew my father loved me. But my father was a very stern, very strict disciplinarian. And I later in life came to realize that many of my understandings of my heavenly father were more, they were more characteristic of my earthly father than they were of a lot of the stuff that I read in the Bible. I thought of God as being strict, severe, disciplinary. Uh, you know, a lot of times, at, in my teens especially, the only time I felt the presence of God was when I was feeling guilty. Last Sunday I shared that the parable we're looking at, instead of being called the par parable of the prodigal son, it could actually be called the parable of the prodigal God. Because the word prodigal means extremely generous or lavish. I, I don't think people have understood that. I think it had to do with something negative in terms of somebody that ran away. Misbehaving. No, it has to do with being lavish because what he did when he went away was he was lavish and generous and spent everything that he had. The story is primarily about the lavishness of God. And so again I ask, how do we even understand the love of God? Now, I know this is pretty academic, might call it even theological. But I really think it gives us something to think about. It's based on who we believe God to be. Because God is self-existent, His love has no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, 
It is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. You ever stop to think about love from a omna, omnipresent, omni-knowing, omnipotent kind of perspective? Going back to Eric, when he was little, and this is a, a picture of him with sporting his uh, mullet, I think they call those. Uh, Anytime something would be done for Austin or given to Austin, his older brother, Eric would always say, me too, me too. And so I had a shirt made up that simply said, me too, that he would wear. But you know, in the second half of the parable of the father who had two sons, the other, the elder brother, he was not only saying me too, but I think he was really screaming out, what about me? What about me? And I think there's a lot of times that you and I are exactly right there. So that's why I chose to title my sermon this morning simply, what about me? You see, the elder brother thought he had it all together. And so he was struggling with how the father was responding to the return of his younger brother. So let's finish the parable we started last Sunday. Now his older brother was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. The first thing that I want us to notice this morning as we examine this last half of the parable is I want us to notice how he was alienated by his anger. And though we might be inclined to understand it based on our own experiences, because I'm sure every one of us has had opportunities in life to be angry. Perhaps you also 
are disturbed by the elder son's fierce anger. He wasn't just upset. The word that is used here by Jesus as he's telling the story carries with it the idea of a swelling, settled anger that rises kind of like the sap in a tree on a hot day. He was boiling, boiling over. He was angry at both his father and his brother. And he wouldn't even go into the house and share in their joyful celebration. Now, let me pause for just a second. I hope you understand that anger, excuse me, is what's known as a first level emotion. And therefore, it's a normal emotion. And it doesn't have to be sinful. Paul writes to the Christians at Ephesus, be angry and sin not. Actually quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 4.4. Moses, David, the prophets, and even our Lord Jesus are all described in the scriptures at one point or another as being angry. And so anger cannot be a sin because Jesus though angry, we're told, had never sinned. The Puritan preacher Thomas Fuller, he once described anger as the sinews of the soul. Now, if you remember from your studies of biology, or maybe from an injury, sinews are tough, fibrous tissue that unites the bone to the bone, uh, a tendon or a ligament, parts of the structure, the system that gives us strength and binds things together. Think about it that way. Anger's kind of there, kind of at times keeping things in balance. Aristotle, the philosopher, he gave some good advice. Listen to what he said about anger. Any, anybody can be angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time and for the right purpose and in the right way, that's not within everybody's power and it's not easy. The elder brother was angry. And he sinned. He was angry with his father because his father had given the younger son the feast uh, that obviously the elder brother had always wanted. You can almost hear him whining. You never gave me so much as a young goat. The other brother was angry at the younger brother for getting all the attention and receiving the father's special gifts. In fact, as far as the elder brother was concerned, the younger brother didn't deserve any of it. Had he been faithful? No. Had he obeyed the father? No. So why should he be treated with such kindness and love? Why, the younger brother had been far from the father in a distant country because of his sins of passion. But think about it. Was the elder brother in any better position? Remember how Jesus started the parable. 
there was a father who had two sons. We have so often focused on just the younger son who went away and returned that we have sometimes, I think, forgotten that the parable begins. Jesus wants us to hear a story about both sons. And I think, I might be wrong, been wrong before, but I think the older brother was even farther away from the father than his younger brother, even though he was right there on the farm. Why? Well, because not only was he alienated by his anger, but he was isolated by his self-righteousness. When you examine the sins of the elder brother, you can easily understand why he is a picture of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was self-righteous. If he is praying at all, I'm sure it's the prayer Jesus tells about in his story of the two men who were praying and the one said, thank God I'm not like those sinners. I mean, did you hear how he openly announced the sins of his brother but couldn't see his own sins? You see, part of the problem was that the Pharisees defined sin primarily in terms of outward actions, not inward attitudes. They completely missed the message of the Sermon on the Mount and its emphasis on inward attitudes and the holiness of the heart. The elder brother had a serious flaw. A serious flaw that separated him from others. Pride. I mean, did you hear his boast? Listen again to how he worded it. He had served... The word kind of could also be translated slaved. He had served his father all those years and never disobeyed his will. What a testimony, if it's true. But his heart was not in his work. And it seems like he might have been daydreaming of throwing his own big party at which he and his friends could enjoy themselves. <clears throat> he's a hard worker a faithful worker qualities to be commended but his work was not a labor of love not a labor that would please his father I love Mark Twain some of the things he says I don't know if you've ever just sat down and read through some of the books that he's read and some of the little quips that he has Mark Twain said, and I think this is kind of the words of the, the, the older brother, he was a good man in the worst sense of the word. A good man in the worst sense of the word. His heart was completely out of sync with his father. He didn't share his father's loving heart at all. In fact, he was sorry his little brother had even come home. Kipling wrote a poem one time about how things would have been different if the older brother had met the prodigal son as he returned. It's well worth reading. You see, rather than sharing his father's wide-ranging affection, he only cared about himself. And for similar reasons, he didn't share his father's joy. 
in his heart and in his mind, he resented the current situation. Again, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. <coughs> what a way to describe his father-son relationship. <coughs> Gene, would you go give me a bottle of water? <coughs> and you know what? I don't think he even I don't think he even really knows his father. In his heart and in his mind, he somehow was thinking that his father was a stern, stern taskmaster. And if that had been the case, the father wouldn't have treated the younger brother like he did. Because remember what I said last week? The younger brother's request and behavior was the same as if he had just said to his face, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my part of the inheritance. I'm out of here. So the elder brother was judgmental. Which is so common with self-righteous people. You ever known anybody that thought they didn't make any mistakes? So easy for them to point their finger at others, isn't it? Thank you. He was too convinced of his own goodness, too attached to his own hardships, to really understand his little brother. Self-righteous? He overstated his performance. He was convinced of his own goodness that his, and so convinced of his own goodness that his assurance made improvement impossible. Let me tell you something. If you are at a point in your life where you think you're okay, you got everything the way it needs to be, and you're just going to cruise from there, you're not growing. And therefore, you're dying. And I'm talking about spiritually. We can never believe we've made it. We always have room to grow and improve. By the way, did you notice that the same father who ran to meet the prodigal son, doing what no respectable Jewish man would do, they didn't run. He also took the initiative. He didn't have to do that. He could have told one of those servants, go get my other son and tell him to get in here. And in that day and age, if that other brother didn't do it, he'd have been in a lot of trouble. But he didn't do that. He took the initiative. He went out of the house of feasting to plead with the older son. And yet the older brother still refused to go in. He stayed outside and pouted. And so he isolated himself. And he missed the joy of forgiving his brother. And he missed the joy of restoring the broken fellowship. He missed the joy of pleasing his father. And he missed the joy of uniting the family again. How strange that the elder brother could actually speak in a more pleasant way to the servant boy than he could speak to his own father and his brother. And so I don't think it's really hard 
to see the next point. He was lost because of his hard heart. Even though he was in the house, even though he was on the farm, he was lost. And I think this is something that we need to pay close attention to. Because I actually think the story of the prodigal son relates to far more people in terms of the older brother than it does the younger brother. There aren't that many people who have gone off and lived wildly and crazy and spent everything. But there are a lot of people who are living self-righteous lives, pointing their fingers telling their little stories to one another about those people and not showing love like the father did. I think the elder son's attitude is reminiscent of the original workers. Remember the, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard that we talked about back in Matthew 20 in Bible study? Remember how when they received the denarius for the day's wage, even though they were paid what they agreed to at the very beginning, a denarius was a, the amount given for a day's work, they agreed to it. What they did? They grumbled at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who had borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. His heart is hardened. Did you notice that he even omits any respectful address to his father? He criticizes his father. He casts aspersions on his brother's character. You see, he reflects the outlook of the Pharisees as seen by Jesus in the early church. One of the commentaries that I read pointed out that the Pharisees could not have identified themselves as they listened to the parable. In fact, as soon as Jesus began the story and said a father had two sons, they more than likely would have been thinking of Jacob and Esau. And they would have been the younger son who was the chosen son who received the blessing and the birthright. And for Jesus to say that younger son went off in a way of sinful living while well, they'd already been fretting and fuming and they'd have never heard the fact that the older son was a better description of them than the younger son. But the picture here I think agrees with what Jesus said elsewhere about the Pharisees. Jesus' description in the story is meant to make them re-examine themselves. If the son is conscious of faithful service to his father, he's at the same time critical that it seems to have brought him no reward. Not even a young goat, which would have been much cheaper than a fattened calf. Years ago, decades ago a half a century ago actually when I was at Lincoln Christian College it was 50 years ago when I went as a freshman and now I would have been in the spring of my freshman year there was a professor there at that time he didn't have his doctoral degree 
And every time there would be a conversation about somebody going on to get their doctorate or having just got their doctorate or, or having their oral exams, boy, his ears would perk up. He would ask about that, want to know who it was and what they were doing and where they were at. He left Lincoln. Here's the tragedy of the story. He was probably one of the most gifted, one of the most intelligent, one of the most knowledgeable in the New Testament of any of the professors there at that time. But he had never really been able to experience the joy of serving in that way because he was so concerned about the externals. He can't speak. He can't bring himself to speak of his brother but talks contemptuously of the son of yours. It's his belief that his father's livelihood had somehow been destroyed in the sense that the younger brother took his portion and left. He wasn't even there to continue to contribute to the family fortunes. And as you can see, all of this, I think, is because of how his mind has hardened. I mean... He even says that the younger brother had devoured his father's property. And how did he say he did it? Somehow he's come up with the idea that his brother was involved in relationships with prostitutes. The brother's in a far off country. How does he know what his brother did or didn't do? You know, deep down inside... He may have even wished he could blow some of his father's wealth just like his other brother did and in his mind, get away with it. His anger and accusations, they might even be an unconscious confession because of his hard heart. He would have never thought of himself. He, he wouldn't have regarded his jealousy, his pride, his judgmentalism as faults or shortcomings? Why, I'm just telling the truth. Have you ever heard somebody belittle somebody and say, well, I'm just telling the truth. I'm just saying the facts. He certainly wouldn't have been able to admit his own sins. And so he really had no relationship with his father. He was lost. Let me say this. If we are out of fellowship with the Father, as the elder brother was, we cannot be in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. But here's the even greater problem. If we're harboring an unforgiving attitude toward others, if we've allowed our hearts to become hardened, we cannot be in communication with the Father. Not an earthly loving Father, as in the story, nor with our Heavenly Father. 
Remember the call to worship that we heard this morning from Jesse? You got the card there still? Read it nice and loud once more. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has who and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Anyone who does not love. <clears throat> who? Remember the parable Jesus told to tell who? Even that Samaritan despised, hated. That's the one who was the neighbor that we're to love. Our enemies. You don't love. You don't even know God. So here's the challenge. We need to be constantly examining ourselves. Because, as one writer put it, our spiritual temperature is a highly personal matter. We need to ask ourselves, are we in a distant country, like the younger brother because of our passions? Or, because of our attitudes, are we like the older brother? When those we believe have wronged us show true repentance, what are we supposed to do? Forgive them. Why? Not for their sake. The younger brother was inside enjoying the celebration. It was the elder brother who was outside. The brother whose anger, self-righteous thoughts, and hard heart had alienated and isolated him from not only his brother, but from his father and those who were inside. He was the one missing out. You don't forgive somebody. You're the one that is struggling and suffering. It's not hurting them that you aren't forgiving them. Don't think that highly of yourself. Yet the Scriptures seem pretty clear. We should seek to restore them in grace and humility. Go back this afternoon and read Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 all the way to 35. It's a section in my Bible that's titled, If, you sin, if Your Brother Sins Against You. We're instructed by Jesus, If your brother sins against you, go. Go! In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And again in Ephesians 4, verse 32, Paul admonishes us, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see, there's no room for what about me. It's what about my brother who is hurting, who is lost, who's in need. Why should we forgive? Well, how about this? This isn't my opinion. This is Jesus speaking. Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, verse 14. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. When I listen, listen. Verse 15. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So my challenge, let's forgive so we can be forgiven. Let's pray.